Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia, the chair of the committee. Tickets are now on sale for this year's festival, which features a great lineup of authors. For more information, visit marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. For now, enjoy this great session from the 2022 Book Festival. Thank you. Thank you. What a young, young, yes. (laughs) I'll take that. Um, Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, We welcome today to the Marlborough Book Festival Wellington-based poet, essayist and literary commentator Kate Camp. Uh, Widely anthologised and critically acclaimed, she is the author of seven collections of poetry. Her memoir, You Probably Think This Song Is About You, uh, is what we're obviously discussing today, and it was published this year. It's, It's literally, I think this is the copy she has in her hand is one of the very best ones. <laughs> um, Kate's first collection, Unfamiliar Legends of the Stars, won the NZSA Jesse Mackay Award for Best First Book of Poetry at the 1999 Montana New Zealand Book Awards. Her fourth, The Mirror of Simple Annihilated Souls, won the 2011 New Zealand Post Book Awards Best Book of Poetry. Kate is the recipient of many other prestigious awards, including the 2011 Creative New Zealand Berlin Writers' Residency and the 2017 Catherine Mansfield Monton Fellowship. Her poems have appeared in numerous magazines and journals in New Zealand and internationally. Uh, For 20 years, uh, she was the voice of Kate's Classics, monthly conversations on classic literature uh, with Radio New Zealand's Kim Hill. Kate's Classics, a collection of essays based on on that Saturday radio segment, was published by Penguin in 2007. So I'm sure many of you are very familiar with Kate's voice and her her poetry and her insightful opinions about New Zealand literature and literature from other parts of the world. And it's my pleasure to be here to chat with you today about this great new book that you've uh, published, your memoir, you probably think the song is about you. And I wondered whether it might be really nice uh, to actually start with an excerpt, um, because we were talking before about, you know, particularly that, that the first, mm. do you call them stories or chapters? What do you call them? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Pieces, maybe. Pieces, I don't know. Yeah. I'm a bit vague on that. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe you'd like to start with an excerpt that can just get the conversation going. Absolutely. Oh, kia ora koutou. Nice to see you. Nice to see you all. Um, yeah, when I, when I say it, um, I always think of it as you probably think the song is about you because of, because of the, the song. So um, the first, first piece in the, in the book is um, a lot about song lyrics. More than any other, the lyric which obsessed me as a child was the chorus of You're So Vain. You're so vain, you probably think the song is about you. You're so vain, you probably think the song is about you. I remember turning it over and over in my head. She's saying he's vain because he thinks the song is about him, but the song is about him. It was like a Zen koan, a perpetual motion machine, something that no matter how much you thought about it, you couldn't solve because it meant both things at the same time. And it appealed to me too because she turned her hurt feelings into something funny. And even though the song was all about him, it was really all about her 
because she was the clever one, the one who rhymed yacht with apricot and said clouds in my coffee, which didn't make sense but sounded fantastic. There were many things in childhood which we enjoyed but needed to pretend we hated, and singing in school assemblies was one of those. We'd sit cross-legged on the dusty wooden floor of the hall, looking up at the words on the overhead, neatly written out with V1 and V2 in chorus, down the margin in red. Our school music in the 1970s was in a kind of transition. In throwback mode, we danced to Jump Jim Crow in folk dancing and sang My Grandfather's Clock, changing it, of course, to My Grandfather's Cock. It was taller by half than the old man himself, though it weighed not a penny weight more. It was hilarious in standard four. Uh, Then there were the cool songs, which were the domain of our music teacher, Mr Carpenter, who had big curly hair and a moustache. He got us to sing Crazy Little Thing Called Love, which had only just come out. And I might be making this up, but I think we were even snapping our fingers in time. Mr Carpenter was the only male teacher at our school, and he was a different generation to all the other teachers. He was more like one of the students from fame. And when I got the role of narrator in our production of Winnie the Pooh, the three of us, Pooh, Christopher Robin and I, went round to Mr Carpenter's on a Saturday to practice our lines. And he offered us a cup of coffee. And I can remember the mug it came in, which seemed oversized, but then I was only 10. And he had a packet of odd fellows on the coffee table. The bag had been torn open and was lying there with the odd fellows exposed like dusty pieces from a fallen temple. And I'd only ever seen lollies offered from the neatly opened top of a bag or poured into a bowl for a party. That odd fellows bag torn open with such abandon the rubber plant growing in the corner, the huge mug with the little specks of instant coffee that have floated to the top, the height of sophistication had been reached. (laughs) Actually, there was another male teacher at our primary school, Mr Titchborn. He was immortalised in the pool rules. No running, no ducking, no diving, and in green crayon, no Titchborns. Thank you. I'm so glad that you chose that part because I that really it's it's a great way for the collection to start because obviously it's just landing it in that um, this this idea of the taking something sad and turning it into funny really struck me at the beginning of the book. Um, the nature of being a writer is that your life's work, you know, has been to report on events from a multitude of perspectives and some of which are designed very much to present your opinion, such mm. as in your role as a literary commentator um, and others obviously as a poet, which are open for so much interpretation. Um, so, you know, you sit very comfortably in that role as writer, expert. Um, memoir, however, you know, is... is to do with memory, Mm. um, which most of us have experienced as being unreliable at times. And I wondered how that was for you. Um, It's it's interesting that there's so many details that feel so accurate, Mm. but I wondered how it was for you trusting your memory and what you discovered in the process of explicitly using that to create this work. Yeah, it's a really really interesting question and observation. I mean, I think... I say in the the notes at the end of the book, I I see this not as a factual account of my life, but as a book about my memories. And to me, that's two quite different things. And so 
Um, I'm actually, I've recently been in email contact with Mr Carpenter, or Bruce as I'm now uh, allowed to call him, who's now a forensic accountant in San Francisco of all things. Um, and, you know, I haven't said to him, did you have a rubber plant in the corner of your flat in, you know, 1979? Um, but if he didn't, I wouldn't change it because that's that's my recollection of it. You know, it's the first time I'd been to an adult person's flat that wasn't the house of one of my suburban school friends, you know. So um, that that's how I remember, remember that. So I, I feel like those kind of details we've all had that experience of being absolutely sure about a detail or something bigger and more important and just finding out that it simply couldn't have been true um, but I sort of made the decision early on with the book that I would I would narrate things as I remembered them and not kind of fact check them with the family or you know I mean I shared the content of the book with my mother father and sister and with people who are mentioned in it, if, if their names are uh, are in there, um, from a sort of ethical point of view, but it wasn't like to fact fact check. So, um, yeah. So I feel like you know I can speak with absolute authority about what I remember, whether that's about the truth or not. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I thought your acknowledgements were really. I loved the acknowledgements. Um, you you. I like the way you said your dad is, he's proud of you and he can only see the good. Mm. And your mum is your soulmate. Um, what was that like, sharing the memoir with, with them? And I'm curious about, um, yeah, was it, was it something that you did by degrees or, or did you wait until you had finished the stories or it wasn't fact-checking, as mm. you said, but what, what was that like to share with those people? Um, it's a little bit different. Um, with, I mean, I showed the manuscript to my father when I'd basically finished most of it, although then he's read it since it's been the book and there were some things in there that, that weren't in there the first time round. I mean, I think for context, you know, the book has got lots of warm, fuzzy, nostalgic things like what I've just read from, um, but it also features, you know, suicide, domestic violence. Um, my mother was the victim of violent crime. It talks about that. Um, sexual assault, you know, addiction, infertility. So trigger warning on all of the above. And, I mean, these are the things that come into our lives and we all have um, difficult experiences in life. And I, I think when Dad read the manuscript, he said, I can't understand why you've written about all the dark things. And, you know, during this time you were getting great jobs, you won the Book Award, you know, you went to Berlin. It's like, why is none of that in there? And I sort of said, well... You know, people can look at my LinkedIn page for that. I mean, I feel like um, I feel like on some level those things aren't interesting to me. That you know, they don't. They don't. I'm not still working through those things in the way that I'm working through the more difficult things. Um, but then also some, some things in the book, like I'm just obsessed about my memories of what was in my grandparents' house in Hastings when I was growing up, and there's nothing controversial about that, but it, for some reason, feels very important to me. So I wanted to write a whole chapter about this is everything I remember being in my grandparents' house in Hastings. This is everything I remember being in my grandmother's house in Kandala. So, yeah, I, I can't really tell why things are, feel important to me, but I know that if they do... That's what I'm going to write about, however banal it is or however humiliating or disturbing it is. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot in there because um, in, in what you're saying, I'm thinking about 
um, the story to do, I'm going to call them stories, mm. um, to do with your mother's, uh, the attack that mm. happened on your mother. And that's a really interesting example because I guess that responsibility of your own, own memory or mm. your own experience of supporting her through that, but mm. it was also her experience. So what was that like in terms of, you know, did you want to, did you check with her that mm. she was okay for you to write about it? Or can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I always knew, so 20 odd years ago, my mother was a victim of a home invasion and was sexually assaulted in her home. And I, um, I, I, I think we both, she and I both probably knew that I would write about it one Day And, I mean, she's an English teacher, you know, she's a very literary person and I think um, she can kind of see it from all perspectives. Um, but, I mean, obviously I would have never written about it without her blessing and then I would have never published it having written it without her blessing. So um, she, when she read it, she said, oh, I think I come out of this sounding pretty staunch. Um, and she was quite surprised by that, which, you know, wasn't a surprise to anyone else who was around at the time because she was incredibly staunch and, and she's, she was very, very brave. But I think my favourite bit of that whole essay, and, you know, it, it covers a whole lot of the experience. It took them a long time to catch the guy. Then they caught the guy. He's been in prison ever since. And every year we go to the parole board and explain why he should still be locked up. So, you know, like it's a, it's an ongoing thing. In fact, got parole board hearing later this month. So, um, so cover, cover all of that. But I think my favorite bit of the whole essay is when I say that when we go to the parole board, my mother has this annoying habit. It's on Lampton Key. My mother has this annoying habit of never carrying a fucking handbag. Like she always just has her keys in one hand and her wallet in the other. And and so, you know, when we finished at the parole board and we've just, like, me and my sister and mum have all just kind of oh, got, had a coffee and then mum's going home and I see her getting on the bus. I think, just get a fucking bag, you know. Like, do you have to carry your keys in your hand? It's so impractical. And I think I like that because it shows to me that, you know, whatever, however huge and traumatic the experiences are, your mother is still just that person who, through doing something that's completely none of your business, can really irritate the hell out of yeah. you. <laughs> And so for me, that really... Um, Keeping it real. Yeah, it kind of brings the relationship back down to earth to where it belongs, yeah. which is, you know, this is this huge thing that happened, but we're still us, like we're still the same people. We've still got a black sense of humour about it, and we, you know, it was a, and remains a trauma in, in her life and in our lives, my sister and I, but, um, but, but we're still us. And to me, that's a very important... Um, sense of power as well that comes from still retaining your own attitude to life despite the things that try and push you off balance yeah do, do you think like it's interesting that for you to present her story and for her to take something out of it like oh I was you know came across as I didn't realize I would have been as staunch as that have there been any that story or any of the other stories where um you know people have expressed surprise to you at your your version of what had happened when it's aligned very closely to somebody else's experience? Has that created any tension for you? Not really. I mean, I'm very close to my sister. She's only 18 months older than me. So a lot of the difficult um, sort of youthful um, stupidities um, were things that she was aware of or was witness to and kind of um, one way or another. But I think... Yeah, I think it's just you never, no matter how close you are to someone, you never really know what's going on inside their head. So I think that that, you know, that probably um, was 
was quite surprising. I just think it's a really hard book for both of my parents aren't together, but I think it's a really hard book for each of my parents to read. And I sort of, um, you know, I love them very much and they love me very much. And, and but it's just always going to be difficult for them to read about, you know, me at risk. That's going to be always hard for a parent. Yeah. Um, yeah, there is a real raw bravery when you're sort of pulling that curtain back on your own life and, and sharing, um, you know, vulnerability um, and, and often some like very sad or scary experiences. And I guess that gets me thinking about, you know, when you're writing a, a memoir, uh, and I mean, writers obviously always, there's always going to be some of yourself in whatever you're mm. writing anyway, right? But for you, were you writing it for yourself first or were, the, were you thinking about the potential readers of this throughout the process? Um, I mean, it's it's kind of got to be both. I suppose if I wasn't already a writer and a published author, maybe I would have been writing it for myself and I wouldn't know if it was going to be published. But I kind of always knew that if I wrote the book, it would get be able to be published. You know, I knew my publisher would be interested in it. So I couldn't... Um, I kind of couldn't not not know that, but I think like I wrote, I started it when I was on the Montom Fellowship, and I had um, I'd been commissioned a couple of years earlier. I'd been asked to write a thing for a, a literary festival, and it was um, write a letter to the person you thought you'd be, and it was you know, and then you read it out loud, and it was. It was a one-off performance. People weren't allowed to um, record it or share what was said in this. You know, they tried to create a safe space. And um, so I thought, as soon as I saw that prompt, I thought, oh, well, that's obvious, I guess. I always thought I'd be a mother and I don't have kids. And I always thought I'd be some kind of addict and I'm not anymore. So, um, and then I thought, oh, there's no way I'm writing about that and reading it out in public. Um, but then I thought, well, I know from my poetry um, career that, you know, usually the things that you don't, that you think, oh, God, I could never write about that, that's usually a sign that you need to immediately go there and write about that thing. So I said, yes, I would do it, and I wrote the wrote the piece. And when I read it at this thing, when I stepped down off the stage, I was just like, wow, that was a very powerful experience for me doing that. I, I want to do some more of that. So I applied for the Montom Fellowship to do to do memoir. And I think it was a lot easier for me starting it when I was over there, cut off from everyone back home and just living in a little bit of a bubble. I think that made it easier because it is, you know, it is super confronting to go back to difficult times in your life and and I think as well, it was even more than the like invading my own privacy, it was more just the so what factor mm-hmm. that was very off-putting about writing the book. Because I think, you know, honestly, just, who in the world could possibly care that when I was nine years old, someone had written in green crayon at the bottom of the pool rules, no Tichborns. I mean, that's the most insignificant piece of minutiae rescued from the world that you could possibly imagine, you know, there's people in the world having extraordinary experiences every day. Why would anyone care about that? But I just had to put that out of my mind and think, you know, I work at Te Papa at the museum um, and I had to think, well, you know, a hundred years from now, this will be this will be the history of the early, of the late part of the 20th century and it will be, you know, it will be just as interesting as when, you know, when I look in the collections and there's some, you know, Victorian children's toy or these are... Um, you know, plastic animals from the uh, cereal boxes from the 70s, and these are into Papa's collection. Mm-hmm. So 
um, yeah, that that was the hardest thing to overcome, I think. Mm. I mean, we we are interested in the minutiae of other people's lives. That's the that's the funny thing, right? Mm. And um, it's also the relatability, I think, that comes through in the book. Um, it interests me that you talked about, you know, starting it when you were far from home. Um, I felt particularly when I was reading the one about your grandparents' house, there was this distinct sense of you observing yourself, mm. you know, you know, you might be doing this or you might mm. empty out this board game or um, I'm wondering whether that that sort of came from that sense of distance that you had or, or was that a stylistic choice that you made or how did these stories flow out of you in terms of, um, you know, did you have an end product in mm. mind stylistically or was it more free? Well, it was interesting hearing Kirsten um, Dougal talking this morning about um, in her session about when she's writing fiction and how she sort of technically achieves the voice and she sort of said you know well she just kind of writes it and if it feels right then she knows it's working and and she said you know she's got the ability as a critic as a teacher to look at someone else's writing and see how they're achieving the effects or not but as a writer she just is going on instinct and I'm exactly the same like you know I studied English too and I've done lots of literary analysis and I'm in creative writing workshops and you know I can pick apart a poem of someone else's or of my own once I've finished it and see how it's achieving its effects. But while I'm writing, I'm not thinking about any of that. I just try and switch off my brain and just be in the moment and not not have that kind of intellectual um, brain on at all because then it just the crushing self-consciousness <laughs> just sort of stops you being able to do anything. Yeah, yeah, trying too hard to yeah. make it something other than just use yeah. their creative flow onto the yeah onto the paper or the screen or whatever. Yeah. Hi, I'm Kate DeGoldie. I'm a writer and a publisher and a reader. Awesome. And what do you think of our Marlborough Book Festival? Well, it's one of the great festivals in the Southern Hemisphere because it is so carefully thought through. It has superb content, very carefully curated collection of writers and presenters and then it looks after everyone at the festival writers and the participants and the audiences so beautifully. Wine is very present which is of course wonderful but um, everyone stays in the most beautiful surroundings and are looked after, every need is looked after. And then there's just the communion of writers and, and the communion of writers with their audiences. I've had such good conversations with people after um, various um, presentations. So it's, um, it's, it's an absolutely top happening for me. Yeah. I'm wondering if it would be nice to hear another excerpt from, sure. from your collection. Yeah, I thought um, this it's quite unusual for me because I'm used to reading poetry and when you read poetry, obviously you read a whole poem, so it's quite an unusual experience having to select um, parts of things to read. And then it's also, um, you know, given the nature of some of the content, it's like, you know, I don't want to only read things that are warm and fuzzy, but then I also don't want to be like the sensational shock value. So try and strike some somewhere in the middle. So this is just a piece out of the middle of the longest, you know, the longest piece in the in the book is really um, an account of an abusive relationship that I was in for a long, 
that I was in for a long time um, when I was a teenager and in my 20s. So this is just in the, a piece from the middle of that. Um, it was a surreal feeling to find myself in the Wellington District Court, part of this soap opera, with the victim, this crazy junkie, the defendant, my violent boyfriend, and the lead witness, a 14-year-old boy dressed like a trainee stockbroker. It was an afternoon hearing with sun pouring in through the windows, and people spoke so fast the stenographer couldn't keep up, and at one point she burst into tears and the judge had to call a recess. Then they were announcing the sentence, two years, and I thought they were going to say two years periodic detention, but it was two years imprisonment. They let me and Jimmy have a quick hug, and then they took him away. It gave me a sense of the power of the state that I've never forgotten. The finality of it left me stunned, how this messy personal story with all its backwaters and undercurrents, the teenage crush, the crying typist, the flimsy sword with its cheap metal blade, all of this had been rendered into solid, objective fact, simple and final. Then I was on the number 14 bus going home to Thorndon, and I was crying, and I couldn't understand how I could be genuinely upset and at the same time be thinking, look at this girl, she's only 17 years old, but she's crying on a bus because her boyfriend's been taken to jail. Part of me knew that this was the kind of thing that I wanted to happen. It was dramatic and daring and would make a great story later in life when I would be middle-aged and somehow beyond all this. And I knew it was despicable to think that way, that I was such a phony. The thing I remember most clearly about jail was the doors. They were sliding panels of bars, painted a kind of beigey salmon, and just like in prison on TV, they opened in front of you and then slammed shut behind with a huge clanging noise before the next set opened up. On my first visit, I felt like looking around to catch someone's eye as if to say, my God, how prisony is this? Yeah. So for you, what, what's, what is it about that excerpt that is really significant for you to share with us? I think it's the um, it's that that sense of um, the casting forward into the future, that sense of how even though I was in these, putting myself into these situations and experiencing genuine, you know, trauma of one kind or another, that on another level I was playing out a narrative that was really familiar to me because I was a bright, you know, I was reading whatever, you know, Julian Barnes or <laughs> whatever when I wasn't visiting my boyfriend in prison. So, you know, I was a sophisticated brain in some ways, enough to know that it was a cliche to be a middle-class girl who goes off the rails and gets into trouble and that then will probably... Uh, bounce back and be, you know, be back into a life of privilege. Like I even, I knew that was a cliche even then. But, and so I sort of wanted to include that sense of it, partly to not kind of let myself off the hook or to kind of check my privilege. But in another way as well, there's almost an added naivety to it because I now just think of that girl and just think, She's so naive that she doesn't realise that sense of being outside of yourself and kind of split into two, or that's just a human condition. I mean, that's just the kind of self-consciousness that we all have, and that's kind of, there's nothing, it's not a phoniness, it's just, that's just life, you know, you can't, you can't get away from that, it's, you never, you know, 
your, your emotions don't behave the way they're supposed to, you know. You can be two things at the same time. So I sort of feel like, you know, I, th- I thought at the time when I was going through a lot of these youthful sort of experiences that I was this sort of cynical, uh, worldly character. And now I just sort of think, oh, bless. <laughs> I, uh, I was smart, but I was extremely emotionally naive in a way and um and I think I've always been a risk taker and you should as a young woman be able to be more daring um without it being as dangerous as it is but because of the world we live in it's it's very dangerous Mm. yeah yeah it's it's interesting because I had a little excerpt that I'd taken from that story as well which is um when you described um when you say when I think of those visits it's that memory that comes to mind first that comes to mind first waiting under my jean jacket the scraps of bright sunshine cutting through the gaps the smell of the grass and that warm cold feeling of being in full sunshine on a day that's probably quite cool in the shade maybe I did it only once memory has a way of turning I did into I always did and I sort of wondered whether you know writing these accounts and and these ideas are cropping up in in so many of the stories was there sort of a reclaiming of your own narrative it sounds a little bit like that's what you're describing um was that motivating you to write the memoir I mean I I think I I guess I've always known as I've always known all these stories and so a lot of people who know me know these stories because I've told them you know I mean there's they make some pretty great dinner table stories in there um but but I guess for me, I wanted to go beyond the sort of easy, funny version of them and sort of unpack what, yeah, what what was the more vulnerable or what was the least comfortable version of those stories. Because in a way, you know, the stories, we all have stories we tell about our lives and anyone, you know, who's married or has a family knows that people in your family tell the same stories over and over again. And you know their stories and they know your stories. And it's quite fun when you meet a new person who doesn't know your stories because then you can trot out all the classics, you know. And um, but, but, but we all tell our stories in a certain curated way and even the stories of the worst things. You know, if someone tells you the story of when their mother died, you know, they're, they're going to tell the story with the same beats every time and that becomes their version of the story but underneath that is another story of the things they're not telling you you know and I mean I think my my husband's here and I'm thinking you know when his mother died the day of his mother's funeral he left his glasses case on top of the car and lost his glasses you know and that's like a classic thing that happens on a funeral day but that might be the kind of detail that you never talk about when you talk about it because it doesn't seem important enough or um and so I'm was really interested in the book and trying to expand into those areas that maybe didn't feel so comfortable. They weren't the comfortable stepping stones of how I would normally tell that story. Um, and, and my process of writing them would just be like I'd have a theme that I wanted to write about, like smoking, cigarette smoking. And I would just write and write and write and write, write everything I could ever remember about having been a cigarette smoker from my earliest days as a young child stealing cigarettes out of the car ashtray through to, you know, having finally stopped smoking. And I just, for however many days that took me, sitting in the little writing room in Montan, I just wrote, 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 wrote until I couldn't think of anything else about it. And only then did I sort of go back and try and make it into something worth reading. Mm, mm. Um, 
I, I like the way you, you talked before about how it, it, it's like writing, seeing yourself differently as well, mm. sort of seeing that teenage girl and, and maybe being a bit more compassionate with mm. her than you, you may have been at the actual time. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's been some of that has occurred for you as you've written and then reread the, the stories? Yeah, I think I... Um I mean, I don't talk about it in this um, book because I plan to do another separate project about it, but I've got a diary. I never kept a diary in my whole life, but I kept a diary for the year of 1986, which was the year, my fourth form year. And so that was the year, just coincidentally, someone must have given me a diary for Christmas, but coincidentally, that was the year my parents got divorced. Um, that was the year I nearly said I lost my virginity. That was the year I had sex for the first time. And, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of a lot of things happening, you know. And and I've got this amazing record where I kept an entry of every day for that year. And it's weird to look back on it now and sort of, like, I've had that diary and I've looked at it and through all the different phases since. So I had it as a teenager. Then I remember looking at it in my 20s and thinking, oh, my God, this is so embarrassing. How cringe-making. Um, and then looking at it in my 30s and thinking, oh, my God, this is awful, you know. This, Jesus, this is terrible. This is like at-risk youth, you know. This is just, wow, how traumatic. And then sort of in my 40s, I started doing this thing at um, the Verb Festival in Wellington, Bad Diaries Salon, where people read from their actual diaries and from their teenage diaries. So I've read from it a number of times now. And it's so funny. It's really hilarious, but also like really confronting and in your face. So it's amazing to read from. And so then I sort of, over the years now that I've been reading from it at these things, I've started to be like, I actually quite like this girl, you know. Like it's sort of, I think... You know, I can see I can see that that's me. It sort of feels like me. There's a sense of cohesion between, even though the diary is like exactly what you expect a teenage diary to be. It's full of posturing. It's terribly pretentious, and um, most of it's completely invented. You know, I'm sure so many of the things that I'm talking about in it. You know, was, oh, I got out and went out and got pissed doing this. You know, probably had like one beer between five people or something, but. Um, but yeah, just the, I think I feel a lot more, more compassion, more acceptance, and maybe more sort of integration with those past people, yes. past versions of myself. It's it's really refreshing though, because I, I think for so many of us, you know, we're encouraged to just feel. I mean, most of us have burned those. Mm, I know. Um, and so it, it, it's it's nice to to be able to be loving and not perhaps take yourself so seriously mm. like it's not this uh it's, it's a, a definition of self that you continue to carry mm. with you forever you've used it in this most creative way um and, and I just feel it's such a miracle that it survived because I could have so easily burned it or thrown it out at different stages yeah. or just lost it along the way so yeah yeah um I love the story a packet of Benson and Hedges and a box of matches um and what struck me about it was, and it comes through in some of the other stories, this kind of tension between needing to belong but also wanting to stand out. Um, and, and you say the best thing about smoking is that you were never alone. Even if you were alone, if you went down to the pines and there was no one there, you knew no one to talk to, you went alone, alone, like you would have been if you'd been sitting on a bench somewhere you had a reason to be where you were and you had something to do with your hands and your mouth and your eyes and 
then the bell would go and you'd gut drag the last bit and walk back with the pine trees above you, past the incinerator, past the canteen, past the netball courts and back to class, reeking of smoke which you couldn't smell yourself but which was in its own way a protective shield because to be a rule breaker was in some way to belong. Um, and I'm wondering, like, as, as a writer, you know, does your writing help you find your, now that you, I'm, I think you don't smoke, I think from having finished that story now. So does the writing help you feel like you belong? Does it help you find that community? It also sets you apart. How do you, how do you sit with that, that contrast these days? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really astute observation. And I think that, um, you know, around the time, the sort of time when I was probably beginning to get out of being a, you know, I was a heavy pot smoker for many, many years. And the time when I was beginning to get out of that only took me like 10 more years to actually do it. But I think it was, was when I started writing seriously. So in my early 20s, you know, I did the creative writing course at Victoria and it was, and, and, and when I went on to that course and I was still with the, you know, abusive boyfriend on and off and blah de blah had my addiction issues. But I, I remember thinking even at 23 or whatever it was when I went on that course, I remember thinking this is an opportunity for me to change who I am and the direction of my life. Like this could be my thing. This could become my thing. Like pot was my thing. This could be my new thing. And, um, and yeah, and so I think that that does fulfil a lot of that. But when you read that bit about the smoking, um, the thing that came to mind for me was our phones. We don't need to smoke anymore because we've got our phones. You know, when you're at the bus stop, when you're waiting for your train, when you feel self-conscious, when you're a little bit bored, when you've accidentally bumped into something and you're, you're just embarrassed and you just, you know, if you need to, if you ever need to extract yourself from reality, <laughs> you've always got it there and it just creates that impermeable social shield that was what smoking, smoking used to do. So, yeah, I think... Um, I think we've we've uh, we've made smoking obsolete by the invention of the smartphone. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, you know, this morning when when we heard Sue Orr speak, and mm. and there was um, a woman who you know was talking about her response to that book, and and again, I think I'm just curious about that connection with people, both your community of writers and the people who who read your poetry, and mm. who, some of whom will no doubt have read your memoir. How how important is that for you to feel that connection with with other like minded creatives? Um, I think it's really important to me to feel that connection with just anyone, let alone with um, other writers. I mm. think that that's you know that's probably what drives the creative impulse for me anyway. Is a sense that you know I want to communicate something that feels true to me, and then I hope that it will feel true to someone else, and that that then creates i don't know maybe it is that sense of belonging or um a kind of it just a kind of resonance that that just feels feels good and i mean when i call when I decided on the title of the book, I was just thinking about that song lyric you know I was obsessed with song lyrics. It was funny hearing Kirsten McDougall mm. say this morning you know about knowing all the words to songs because that's very much a girl teenage girl thing isn't it um but yeah, I just that that was all I was thinking of, but then once I decided it was the title for the book, it just seemed so apt in so many other ways, and you know various people who read the manuscript kind of pointed that out to me, you know Catherine um Chigi said to me, oh um." 
it's it's great, you know, having your so vain as the you know a quote from your so vain as the title when feeling unattractive is such a theme of the book. And I thought, interesting. I mean, there are you know it does talk about that. To me, that's not so much a theme of the book. It's more a theme of being a woman on the planet and being a teenage girl, you know. But I really wanted to write about that in the book because to me that's such an important part of the human, especially teenage, but just general female experience that I that I didn't want to shy away from. So that kind of had that resonance. Um, but then also you probably think this song is about you, you know. I also thought, well, that'll be good for all of the ex-boyfriends who didn't appear in the book. And they'll be like... <laughs> You thought you were in here, but I'll be desperately like thumbing through. Oh my God, I hope I don't come out of this too badly. And then um, it's not about them. Um, but then also the thing of, you know, you, I hope that for the reader, and, and my experience is that when people read the book, for them it's a book about them. It's not really a book about me. Because when they read about the Chinese checkers board that grandma and grandpa had, and when I talk about how you just fit the little checker in and that satisfying feeling as it just sunk into the into the cardboard, you know, everyone's having like, oh, Proustian flashback to some old Monopoly set that they had or some, you know, die cup that you shook the dice in, you know, and, and that's that. So it's really, um, you know, it's really a book about you. So when I was having my moments of insecurity, I would think, oh, well, that's all right. You know, everyone will have their own. It will just fit into a little um, jigsaw puzzle piece in people's own lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that story in particular, I, I certainly experienced myself that myself, those really vivid memories of those places which we have such nostalgia about mm. as children. I liked the um, the Waikanae toilet block mm. with some crayon. There was some graffiti mm. that I think you yeah. and your sister had. Because I know though, I know the toilet block. I've actually got to go check that out next yeah. time I'm in Waikanae. Yeah. Um, and there's <laughs> Maybe always we should put up a blue plaque. <laughs> absolutely. But I, I think that's also, you know, there's also that really nice thing about reading a New Zealand mm. author. And it's like, yes, this is... I know those places. I know I know these locations, and I think there's a real relatability about that too. Mm. Um, I just want to say the um, when people ask me what my favourite poem is, I often say Loris Edmonds' "Camping," mm. um, and that starts. You know, do you remember how we woke to the first bird in that awkward pine behind the ablution block? And I've always found that it's a magnificent, amazing poem that you can just Google and, and, and read. But um, it's that ablution block is just like, boom, what the hell is that doing in a poem? And it's such a beautiful romantic poem, but it's that ablution block that really makes you feel like, oh, yes, I know this campground. I know I'm there. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, we, I mean, I, despite being very young, I, I still really young. enjoy that, you know, having grown up on a lot of literature from outside of New Zealand, mm. there's still a thrill when it's like, yeah, I, I know what you're talking about because <laughs> I've been there. And it, 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 and it's, a real, it's, it's nice for us as readers um, when you've been so vulnerable because it normalises our own memories mm. perhaps of some difficult times in our lives as well. You talked about um, themes. Um, you know, do, do you find that themes are like old friends that come up again and again in, in your work? It's or more like old enemies. Old enemies, <laughs> frenemies. Um, were, there, were there themes that came up in this that it's, ah, oh, yes, there you go again, or, or did you find you were, were going into new uncharted territory? I think 
I mean, I think there's probably themes because I'm the same person. And so when I look at, you know, a photo of myself at three years old with a party blowout up each nostril, you know, at the Christmas table, I think, yep, recognise that person. Um, and I sort of think, you know, so some of the same choices and um, ways of being in the world that that would have been, that have been with me, you know, who knows what makes our personality, but my personality has been there throughout. And so I think I've probably, um, the themes that come out in a memoir are really the themes of the types of things that I've done and um yeah and that i and that i value i guess the kinds of things that i that i that i focus on i mean i think even even as quite a young child i think i was into obsessively cataloging things that i saw and noticed around me like i mean maybe that's a kid thing as well where you live on a such a small scale so you tend to see things very small but i think as a poet i've I've always retained that, and I think I have a lot of that very narrow focus memory um, around objects, and that was why when I found this image, this is a, an image from Te Papa's collections that I just came across at work one day, but the, um, you know, the serial toys and they're each one, because they're in the collection box, you know, there's been a little carved out spot for them in the box, and each one's got its own little handwritten label tied to it um, with great delicacy, and I sort of feel like, yeah, that's that's how my memory or my day-to-day -day observation works. I think I tend to have quite a micro-focus. Mm. And I think that's probably a theme theme of the book, you know, is, is very finding a way into things through physical objects. What are some of the other themes that, that, that come through strongly in the, in the collection? Um, well... <sighs> Sort of now that I've, because I finished it a year ago, you know, and then I'm, I haven't read it since then, so it's quite coming back to it now. And then at this festival, having heard Sue talking, um, having the Roe versus Wade decision that's just happened, hearing um, Lloyd talking at his thing about how illegitimacy was such a big theme in his family history and his memoir. I think to me, it's really a book about patriarchy and about what it's like to be a woman um, living in, in a world where so much of being a woman is made kind of toxic, dangerous or uncomfortable in one way or another. And, I mean, that's sort of, even as I say that, I feel like, oh, my God, people are like thinking this is the last thing I want to read about. But I do think that that's actually what it's, what it's about. And I think that that's the experience. I, a lot of the things that I included that felt the most uncomfortable to me were things that are about being a, wo a woman and especially a young woman. Mm. You know, it's not an easy thing to be. And I'm sure, not that I've ever tried it, but being a young man, I'm sure it's tough as well. Mm. But, um, but being a young woman presents so many unique dangers and insecurities and um, just opportunities for self-loathing are everywhere. And I think that that, to me, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why I wanted to um, write about those things. Because, you know, the first, the, the very first impetus for it was writing about, you know, infertility. And I published an extract about, you know, an extract from the book was published in the spin-off about um, doing IVF and unsuccessfully. And I've had so much feedback for, oh my God, I've had so many women contacting me about that. And saying, oh, I've never read anything like this. You know, this happened to me. I've never seen that story anywhere. And so it just, 
I guess it brings home for me that even though I see my life as having been quite privileged and middle class, well, not see it that way, it has been, um, that there's still things that I've experienced that, that if I write about them honestly, that could be, you know, that can really mean something to other other readers out there. Yeah, and I think that, you know, is it almost a responsibility for writers to 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 allow themselves to be vulnerable, to, to name the things that we mm. feel ashamed about? Um, does that get heavy, that responsibility, when when it's so in your nature to be observing and chronicling and reflecting? I don't experience it like that. To me, it's such privilege. I feel mm. so, so lucky. And I think, um, I feel lucky to be able to, you know, do all the things that I do, obviously. But I, especially I feel lucky to be able to have an outlet, a creative outlet, where I'm able to make meaning out of this messed up beautiful world that we live in you know I feel that that's a real real privilege and a, and a joy I don't um you know it, it's it's hard I and it, it's hard sometimes to do and I do feel like humiliation is another theme <laughs> very much the theme of the book um but yeah I just think it's a privilege to be able to then you know transmute that into some kind of art form yeah absolutely um I'm wondering whether you know you, you you talk a lot in the in the collection about you know collecting stories and oh that'll make a great story. Um, you've finished one memoir. Do you think you know in another ten, twenty, thirty years time there'll be another, or is this a, a genre? Is this a genre you're hoping to continue working in? Yeah, I'd, I really need to. Um undo some of the healthy psychological patterns that I've got into if I'm gonna um, if I'm gonna have good material for another memoir. I, <laughs> I mean I still I've written a, a few um, things that aren't you know the essays about you know um, sort of more travelly type ones or things so I, I don't know but I feel like this is the um, this is this probably has satisfied the life writing that I wanted to do about my kind of um, my life life to date so um, but I can you know I really enjoy writing prose which is not my usual thing so I wouldn't rule out um, some other forays I mean I'd like to write a whole project about this diary from 1986 that I've got so that's kind of that's sort of circling around and I thought maybe you know um, maybe in 2026 you know touch wood um, maybe I should write something every day in response to the diary entry from that day, you know, from 1986. I was kind of annoyed when I realised oh, I could have done that in 2016, but I didn't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really interesting idea. Um, I'm wondering if we could close with uh, another excerpt before we go into um, opening up to the floor for questions. I think you should definitely do that, by the way. <laughs> it's a really cool idea. Yeah, I think that would be... Could, could have potential. Mm. Um, so we have... Um, I've lived in Wellington all my life, and we've got a batch up at Waikanae, which is just like an hour north of, north of Wellington. And um, that's always the place where my sentimental memory goes to settle. Sometimes at Waikanae, we have to go to bed while it's still light. And then sometimes mum and dad will wake us up later and take us for a midnight walk. I don't know if it's actually midnight, but it's dark and there's no wind. 
we get dressed and go down onto the beach. Earlier in the day, Dad has made a fire down there and he lights it and once it's died down a bit, we put bananas wrapped in tinfoil into the embers. It's surprising how much you can see once your eyes adjust to the dark. The beach is like the surface of the moon. The sand smells different, has an almost burnt smell, resolutely neutral. And there's so many stars, way more stars than you see in Wellington. They go all the way down to the sea. The cooked bananas don't taste that great, but they're hot and they've been cooked on a fire on the beach. I suppose we eat them with a spoon, but I can't remember that. Just the sight of them as they come off the fire in their blackened, wrinkled tinfoil, like some lunar explorers rescued from a crash site. Maybe this only happens once, the midnight walk. Maybe everything only happens once. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Um, it's a beautiful exit to, to finish with. Um, and it, we're just left with so... I've just got so many more questions now <laughs> um, that I would love to ask you, but I do want to open up to the floor because I know people will be um, reflecting on their own engagement with this collection or they might have questions for Kate about her process. So it would be lovely to take this opportunity... Hello, Kate. My name is Eva. Um, I just started reading your book, and um, I just think it's it's mem memories are universal. And I'm not a New Zealander, mm -hmm. and I'm reading this book, and I'm thinking, oh yes, I remember that. Mm -hmm. but doing it in my country, or mm -hmm. I, or going on holiday, or you know, hanging out toilets, or smoking cigarettes, or doing all these things. And I think they, they're very, very universal. And as I'm reading it, I'm seeing it as a film, mm. right? Very filmic. It's very filmic. It's very voyeuristic. Um, almost, almost at times perversive. <laughs> so I, I really, I'm really enjoying it and quite analytical and funny and quirky. And I'm thinking... Okay, if you were going to make a movie out of this um, book, which should be made into a movie, I think, would you choose Fellini? You know, mm. you know why? Then, but would you use Bertolucci, <laughs> right? Or Taika Waititi, right? Or Jane Campion? Right? So I'm just thinking, um, I'm, I'm, my question is, how, how do you see your book being made into a movie? Mm. Um, well, I, I would choose Jane Campion because I'd choose a woman. Oh, yes. No yeah, I thought you were going to yeah, say no that. No doubt. So that kind of, <laughs> yeah. So then maybe there would be another woman I would choose. But, um, but tell see, me my head went, where, who was I, was I going to have to play me you. was where I thought you were going. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I can't, not sure. That one. Maybe that could open up a new career True I could thoughts. play myself. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, were, were you, I'm sorry, I've got another question, but I want to open it up. <laughs> there might be other people that have something that they would like to ask Kate. Thank you. This is so unlike me to, my, to be 
bearing my soul in these circumstances. But thank you very much, Kate and Naomi. <clears throat> I just wondered, um, I think every woman in this room probably thinks, you know, I should be doing this. I should be, no matter how naively we do it, but we should be doing it for our children. I've got three daughters who would love to hear mm. what's, been, what's gone on in my life. And um, so thank you for that. I hope it encourages people to do that. And I just have one little question. What happened to the boy in the prison? Do you still keep in touch with him? Oh, God, no. No. Oh. No. I mean, he was, you know, I was going to say he was a bad and He wasn't a bad and He was just a very messed up guy. But um, no, and I mean, one of my fears of publishing the book was that he would come back into my life. I still fear that he would reach out and contact me or whatever. So um, no, so touch wood. Haven't been in contact with Jimmy for... Um, for, yeah, a long time. So you don't know whether he made good in the end or not? I'd be very surprised. Oh, okay. Kate, I'd, I'm interested in whether once you've completed a book like that that is very personal, mm. how you feel afterwards. Like, is it cathartic? Do you, do you, does it take you to a better place? Um, yeah, really astute, interesting question. I mean, I've been through different phases now since I finished the book. So when I finished the book in the middle of last year, I felt quite down like I felt the way I described it was it's like it's like imagine you've had an attic full of all the crap that you've been collecting over the years and you've never admitted this to anyone but part of you's always felt there might be some amazing hidden treasure in there like some some letter that's going to explain everything some some long lost music box that you haven't seen since you were six you know and you always secretly believe that there's going to be something magical in there and then one day you go in you have a big old Marie Kondo and you clear everything out and you tidy it all out and you discover no there's nothing in there there's no like door to Narnia there's no <laughs> magic key there's just a bunch of old stuff like everyone has so I felt quite um yeah felt empty out in not a good way I think when I first finished it and but I also know from my other from you know from 50 years of life on the planet that often when you do a big project then when it finishes you often do feel a bit flat so I kind of didn't let that get to me too much um but I feel like looking back now having it been a year you know it's a year since I finished it I've just turned 50 um the book's coming out now I feel like it's a quite a pivot point in my life and I actually feel it's been a really um a really healing and yes cathartic and just I just feel a sense of contentment um and I guess of connection with my past you know I always say well, all the Russian dolls of myself you know I feel like I kind of I feel like I've unpack them all and then that satisfying feeling when you pop them back together and put them in again so I feel yeah I I feel really good for having for having done it now and now now in the, now in a different phase where people are reading it and then that's kind of another kind of gift that comes from you know hearing that it resonates with people
So does that free you up to do something quite different now? Um, I don't know. I don't know if it frees me up to do anything different, but um, it just makes me feel good. <laughs> and that's good. Of course. Did you continue with your poetry while you were writing or did you take a break? Yeah, I continued with my poetry. So usually my habit is, you know, I work, I have a day job and on a Wednesday I start my job at midday, so I have Wednesday as my poetry morning. So when I was working on the memoir, I just, my day job was writing the memoir, but on a Wednesday morning I'd still do my poetry morning. So, yep, still kept soldiering on. I think we've come to time unless anybody else has got another question they'd like to ask. Um, I want to uh, remind people that uh, Kate's book is for sale in the foyer and if you um, you may have started reading the book or it's so fresh <laughs> it would be wonderful to to get a copy and these the, the thing I love about it is that you can dip into this you know it's it's um it's a concise volume anyhow but to open up and 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 read one or to, to go backwards, backwards and forwards, and I've enjoyed reviewing them over the last couple of weeks in, in, in different moods. They bring out different feelings and reflections from me, so I'd really encourage you to get yourself a copy of um, Kate's collection. Um, she's going to be signing copies of the book, and we would just ask that you wear your mask when you um, do that uh, just in our current COVID times. Kate, it's just been such a privilege uh, and pleasure to talk with you. Um, I knew we were going to look fantastic together on stage because we nails. just like have matching nails, curly hair and glasses. Um, so I, I was, you know, my priorities were... Um, were satisfied when I when I started doing my research, but seriously, it it was really um, it, it was a privilege to to be one of the first readers of the collection. And um, interest, I thought there was just a great question from the audience to do with uh, that catharsis and that flat feeling. And I I just wish you as you're taking this book out, to share with us all now that I, I'm sure that you're going to continue to get a lot of this positivity back um, because you reflect to us um, very much what it is to be human and mm. a young, awkward teenage girl, amongst other things. So thank you so much. Can we? Thank you. Oh, thank you. That was a fantastic conversation from the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. Tickets are selling fast for this year's event, so head to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. We look forward to seeing you there. Bye for now.